Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I'm your host, Julia Kabinska, and I'm joined today by Corey Burns to discuss his book, Fixing Landscape, A Technopoetic History of China's Three Gorges. Welcome, Corey. Thanks, Julia. It's nice to be here. Um, so I must admit that I have a, a prior relationship with Corey as a classmate. Well, not a classmate, but as um, a, a an alumni of the illustrious Berkeley Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures. Um, and I've invited him here today to talk about his really um, epic and elegant book, Epic in Scale, because it covers thousands of years of um, history of media writing, um, eco-criticism, in fact, the way that, that Corey writes it, uh, about the Three Gorges Dam. But before we get to that fascinating book, I just wanted to introduce Corey um, very briefly. Uh, he is Associate Professor of Chinese Culture at Northwestern, um, both in the Department of Asian Languages and Cultures and the Program in Comparative Literary Studies. At Northwestern, Corey is the co-founder and co-director of the Kaplan Institute for the Humanities Environmental Humanities Workshop, uh, a program that is uh, undoubtedly very relevant to the work that he'll present in this book. Uh, and this past year, he has been a fellow at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies, working hard on his next project, which we will also hear about in the interview. Um, but before we get to the next project, let's focus on this one. And Corey, I'm going to begin, actually, my first question will come from the very first lines of your book. You say, I still remember the first time I tried to articulate the half-formed ideas that inspired this project. At the end of my PhD qualifying exams, I explained to my committee that I wanted to write a dissertation that spanned two millennia in which I would think comparatively about Tang poetry and contemporary film. Um, it would have been easy for them to dismiss this plan as ill-conceived, but instead they didn't. Um, they actually engaged you uh, in a very, uh, like I said, elegant project that came together in this book. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about how you came to this project and perhaps before that, how you came to this field um, and who your intellectual influences at Berkeley or wherever they may have come from were? Sure. Uh, well, thank you for those kind words and the generous introduction. Um, I'm not sure what field I'm in, so it's a little hard to answer that question of, you know, how did I come to this field? Because I have made a, an effort to occupy some interstitial spaces between fields. And I know that people say that kind of thing a lot. Um, and it's true to varying degrees for different people. I think it is definitely the case for me that I, although I'm trained in Chinese studies, am also um, in or working in or engaging other fields in really serious ways. So I'm still figuring out what my field is. I think it's maybe a field of my own creating to a certain extent, um, although you know one does not always have complete liberty when it comes to these things. Um, but I... You know, I I had a, f a personal connection to, to China. Um, I had family who were living there. And I, although I hadn't been studying Chinese at all in college, I decided to um, take some time off of school. And I, and I moved in with my relatives there and studied Chinese. And, and, um, and I haven't stopped since. And when I went back to school, I, I continued uh, to do that and just put one foot in front of the other. Initially, what I thought I would do um, and what I did do in, in a master's program was I worked on pre-modern literature. And when I arrived at Berkeley, I was also working mostly in pre-modern literary studies, medieval um, Chinese literary studies, poetry. Uh, and much of my co coursework was was in that area, actually. Um, and so I think I realized at a certain point in graduate school that that's not where I wanted to make my intellectual home even though I loved a lot of the material I was working with and had an amazing, um, you know, advisor in Paulo Varsano. But um, I, 
really made a transition away from pre-modern material um, into the modern contemporary period, which is what I work work on mostly now these days, um, through my dissertation project and, and through the relationships I built with faculty at Berkeley, especially, um, as I said, Paula Varsano, but also Andrew Jones, who's our shared advisor, co-advisor of my project, um, and it, you know, great influence on my work and my writing. Um, so I, yeah, I came to the field sort of unexpectedly, but through that personal connection and have been sort of working my way through different sectors of Chinese studies and, 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 um, and beyond over the years. Um, as for the project, uh, yeah, it, w- it was really a pretty basic desire to write about two different cultural objects. One from the pre-modern period, these um, eight poems by Du Fu from the mid-eighth century, the Choshing Basho, which are incredibly famous, um, often seen as the sort of pinnacle of the Chinese poetic tradition, or one of the, you know, one of the peaks of the Chinese poetic tradition, classical tradition, and Jia Zhangke's 2005 film, Still Life. And so I, I encountered those two objects right around the same time at the start of graduate school. Um, I was taking a seminar on Dufu in my first year, which was a truly, uh, in, uh, a truly painful experience, although a really rewarding experience as well. Um, and, and it was right around that time that I also saw Still Life. And I thought, well, these objects both, I found them transformative aesthetically, um, but because they were about the same place, I thought there has to be a way to write about these two things together. And the dissertation came out of this instinct, basically, um, that that it was possible, or rather that it was not just possible, but that there was something worthwhile in writing about um, a pre-modern text and a contemporary text together, um, that in juxtaposing them, and that really is the, the, the primary method in a way of the dissertation, um, that in juxtaposing them, um, I would learn something new and maybe otherwise difficult to know about each of them, um, kind of by approaching them obliquely or maybe very obliquely, even anachronistically. Yeah, um, I think you definitely have shown us things that we don't, wouldn't have necessarily known without this approach. So I'm very interested in the the construction of your book. Uh, and we'll g- get into that a little bit as we talk about how each part Um, is composed of two chapters that speak to each other and how those three parts of the book speak to themselves. But before we get there, um, I wanted to ask you about the stakes and the conversations of your project, right? You say that um, you're writing about, quote, landscape ideas that act materially in the production of space, right? So that's the most broad description. Um, How the aesthetics of landscape are put to use to, quote, fix it or produce a kind of cultural coherence across uh, millennia, right? So if you could uh, prepare the ground for us, so to speak, uh, to so that listeners will know the what what we're talking about as we get deeper and deeper into each one of the chapters of your book. Yeah, Um, there there are a couple of questions there. I think maybe I think I'll. Before talking about the my maybe my interlocutors or or the the fields that I'm working with, maybe it's useful just to say that I um, you know in in conceiving of the project, let's see, in the transition from the dissertation to the book, there were some significant changes, and the dissertation to a certain extent had a um, uh, an elegiac quality to it, a sort of sense of a, of loss. That predominated um, that 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 what appears in contemporary representations is sort of focused on what w- what's been lost in the the fixing or the transformation of this landscape through this massive dam project. And obviously, a lot has been lost, and I talk about that in the in the book. But I really tried to move away from an elegiac narrative that was focused on what was lost because it seemed to me that there were misconceptions about what had persisted in an unchanging way over the course of 2000 years. Um, and so I thought that there was a useful intervention to be made um, in, in how people had written about this particular landscape um, and this particular intervention in the landscape is somehow severing 
an aesthetic tradition and destroying a landscape. Um, it did to a certain extent, but I thought that the story was much more complicated. And 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 by avoiding a strictly elegiac approach, um, I thought that you know that there would be something useful for other people as well who are interested in thinking about. Um, historical rupture, historical change, but also the status of, of, of tradition for want of a better word. Um, uh, so, uh, so that was, I think that was one of the, one of the differences between the dissertation and the book and one of the interventions I wanted to make and how people wrote about this particular place, but also maybe how people thought about the status of, um, quote unquote, Chinese traditions, um, in the present moment. Uh, but the book itself is really a multi-part conversation. Obviously, it's just me having a conversation with myself, but um, that's made possible by reading in fields like cultural geography, in particular art history, um, film studies, trauma studies, um, the environmental humanities, definitely. Um, I, I, I wanted to bring... You know, in particular, the insights of landscape studies and cultural geography to bear on this particular context to think about this relay between representational and material cultures, um, which are never really separate. Um, uh, but I think the the kind of force of the representational tradition in in, in, the, in the Chinese context is such that it's easy to um, lose sight of how um, the physical space is being transformed by its representational cultures. Uh, this idea that uh, the landscape doesn't look quite enough like its representations, and so it must be changed uh, so that it can stay the same or so that it can look more as it does in its representations. And that, I discovered in writing the book is something that's been going on for a very, very long time, much longer than I thought. Um, and yeah, and so definitely landscape studies, cultural geography helped me to, 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 to see that light and hopefully to bring it a little closer to Chinese studies and its, and its spatial, uh, um, and, and, you know, to scholars working on uh, spatial questions in Chinese studies. Uh, absolutely. Uh, that comes across quite strongly in the book and also in an article that I imagine is related, but is not actually part of the book, Landscapes of Desolation, which is a piece that I've as assigned to students, including undergraduate students who, um, you know, they it's a very elegant piece. So sometimes they find it a little bit difficult, but we do have a great time walking through it and, and unlearning that those um, ideas about landscape, especially Chinese landscape, right, as this ineffable past Um and so I recommend that as well to our listeners, and I recommend it as a teaching text, uh, not only as something that you will read only for your enjoyment as a scholar, but also as a teacher of these young students who actually really need to understand these terms, right? This is a book that has very big stakes um, insofar as the reshaping of Chinese landscapes, of Chinese ecologies is has an impact on um, not just China, but actually in a way that the book... Uh, narrates um, and the, the various figures that come into contact in the modern period, especially with this region, will say this is about the world, right? This um, this Three Gorges project is an extractive colonial project. It's a socialist uh, sort of uh, dream project. And ultimately now it is a kind of post-socialist ruination and neoliberal exploitation, right? So uh, why don't we begin, though, with the first part? Before we get into the modern period, uh, this is for me a very indulgent part of the book because I'm also a modernist, but I do love reading um, about pre-modern poetry in particular. And Corey has a very great uh, style in analyzing these poems and in conducting close readings. So that's another thing you'll find in the book. It is full of very careful, um, meticulous close readings of all sorts of media texts. So in the first instance, we'll be dealing with Du Fu. Um, the famous, most famous, perhaps, poet of the Chinese tradition. And the chapter is called Tracing the Gorges. Um, so can you tell us about how this textual gorge, Three Gorges region, is produced in Du Fu's work uh, in that chapter? Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think, I, I think you know, the, the chapter itself 
moves back and forth between the pre-modern and the modern slash contemporary period. So there's a, there is within the chapter itself, a kind of um, toggling or juxtaposition, which is, which is meant to, or designed to work against a kind of chronological logic. Um, basically the chapters move chronologically, but within each chapter, there's a kind of back and forth. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and, you know, and I think that's specifically designed to show um, uh, the sort of um, the continued relevance of that, of the past and how it's rewritten in the contemporary moment um, as a way to, 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 to inform readings of pre-modern texts such that the approach is not just a strictly philological or hermeneutic um, approach. Uh, but yeah, so um, I think... Dufu is really the first, he's certainly not the first person to write about the region. People have been writing about it for well over a thousand years by the time that he arrives. But he's one of the first people to, to who is a prolific poet um, who spent a lot of time, a couple of years in the gorges and wrote many, many, many poems about it. Um, and these were poems that were deeply connected to a tradition, meaning that they tended to be conventional in some ways, that there were familiar references to um, landscape features, to mythology, to figures who had been there before, structures, ruins, etc. Um, classical Chinese poetry is always highly elusive and often highly conventional. And, you know, Dufu's poems are uh, highly elusive and in some ways conventional, but he really expanded um, what could be contained by the conventions or the traditions centered on this landscape. So he, write, he wrote about more things and he wrote about the region in greater detail. And, you know, he made it into a personal landscape, a landscape of, um, uh, of, of isolation, of displacement, um, a kind of, basically a kind of medium for his suffering. Um, and that was something that was mostly very new. Um, so just the sheer quantity of poetry he wrote about the region, and then also this kind of personalization um, of some of the very familiar, highly conventional themes um, that previous poets had used to write about the region, often without having been there. Right? So certain landmarks had been incorporated into, into larger landscape traditions uh, to the extent that one could write um, poetry about the region in a, in a fairly road or performative way, um, you know, without needing to go there. But Dufu did go there. And so I, he changed the tradition as a result by kind of, um, by writing in place in a really intimate and, and biographical way. Uh, and long after his death, but long before our own times, um, many other literati took him up, right? And if you, if in the first chapter we have a sort of textual record, right, uh, that is created through Dufu's poetry, the second chapter, the 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 pair in this first part is actually tracing how Dufu himself becomes a sort of inscription onto the physical landscape. Uh, and you, again, you're working um, as as you noted chronologically, but also with multiple time periods. So could you tell us a little bit about how Dufu is taken up as a Three Gorges figure in the various moments that you write about in the second chapter? Yeah, I, I think he, he becomes a kind of landmark and he becomes part of, um, of a convention about writing, a convention in, in literature about the Three Gorges, particularly in the Song Dynasty, but then, um, you know, from from the song, Northern Song onwards. Um, so that it is not required exactly, but uh, readily available and quite common when passing through certain spots to evoke Dufu as a kind of uh, human landmark in a way. Uh, and at certain moments, particularly in the Song Dynasty, um, that, that was certainly an intertextual um, practice, uh, a kind of elusive practice where you might evoke Dufu by writing about him or setting his poetry uh, when passing through the region and writing your own poetry. Um, but it, it, it took material forms through the construction of various 
I think we could probably safely say touristic landmarks or touristic sites that that had a a quasi ritualistic function. Perhaps there were shrines to Dufu, um, but that were also part of a you know um, a Song dynasty and then in later periods travel industry more or less. Um, and there are some really fascinating texts from the Song dynasty in particular about um, you know about the reconstruction of um, properties that's, that he supposedly lived in um, that would allow you then to go and occupy the same space, um, you know, uh, and this is still the case. I mean, this happens all the time in, in China, and I read about that a little bit, right? In, in Chengdu, you can still go to Dufu's thatched hut, um, and it's still, you know, it's still there, uh, you know, supposedly, um, uh, uh, and this happens, you know, at various moments um, as part of, you know, a touristic culture, and then also as part of a sort of Dufu's elevation to near the peak or the peak of the literary tradition in that historical moment. Um, often, um, not simply by virtue of the quality of his writing, but by virtue of its moral power. Uh, and so that these sites that one visits are literary sites, but they're also sites where you might kind of reinstantiate moral values um, in an embodied way right, by going there. And I think, you know, I think that that um, sort of expression of a maybe a cult of Dufu represents um, something different from earlier periods where you could write about this landscape uh, without ever having gone there. That's still the case. That was always the case. But um, there is a real interest in being there and in going to the exact places that former people, in this case, Dufu, had been and really um, uh, getting some kind of indexical thrill from that. I like I like the idea of the indexical thrill. Um, and I, I there's a very interesting discussion there about these terms of authenticity, right? And what does it mean to be in the place uh, and the physical place versus the textual place? And uh, the way that really the Chinese practice here throws a wrench into many of our, our Western um, or at least founded in Western thought ideas of authenticity or um, historical realness, right? Indexicality. Uh, so for those of you who are interested in... Uh, the poetic tradition, um, and though we have been talking about Du Fu Libai, perhaps the other top poet of the Chinese tradition uh, also makes an appearance. Uh, but I was perhaps most thrilled um, in terms of my own work or the direction my own work is going um, with the second chapter part, the reinscribing of the three gorges. Uh, I was recently reading Mark Reisner's uh, very classic text about the American West and water infrastructures mm -hmm. and was thrilled to discover that actually uh, the architect of America's dams makes an appearance here. And in fact, we've, we shift really um, archives, right? We move away from not only the pre-modern period, but also from the, Chinese tradition per se. You have many Chinese actors, many Chinese actors who are not able to um, express themselves, right? Whose muteness or inability to be represented is in fact something that you take up, especially in the fourth chapter about Chinese labor. But we are dealing primarily in texts produced by Westerners or by Chinese navigators, map makers in conversation with this desire to exploit the Chinese landscape, right? So one of the things that I really liked about the way you framed this chapter is the realization of Chinese landscape, right? How do we make this place that appears uh, like a garden of paradise and a China plate, China on China, as you put it in the book, how do we make it real, right? How do we, uh, and by we, I mean, I'm stepping a little bit into the shoes of these British explorers who want to map and then ultimately perhaps not themselves, but this project is part of this exploitative process of making this these three gorges, this treacherous and difficult to navigate terrain, um, seeable, knowable, and useful. Mm -hmm. So if you could tell us uh, about perhaps not just what this chapter is about, but how you came to orient the second part in such a different time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was hard. Um, the, 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 the two central chapters of the book really re represented a lot of new 
a lot of new research in periods that I hadn't worked in before, but I felt um, that it was necessary to have both a little more historical coverage, but, but to think more carefully about, um, you know, what, what I describe as a reinscription of this landscape in, in the, in the modern period. Um, you know, as a, again, I, I'm, I'm, it, it's, it's hard not to talk about the earlier version of the project, the dissertation, but that, that really was a, was a kind of juxtaposition of pre-modern and modern contemporary materials. And, um, and there was a gap of something like 12 or 1300 years <laughs> between chapters two and chapters and chapter three, between chapter two and chapter three. And I thought, okay, well, obviously that's too much of a gap. There are always going to be gaps in a project like this because you cannot do everything. But I wanted to look a little more closely at, um, at a moment when I think the landscape was being, you know, or people imagined that they were rediscovering or discovering this landscape and re- and really reconceptualizing it. That said, I think I, what I'm I'm invested in finding the similarities between this earlier moment of trying to again make the landscape look more like its representations for various reasons, aesthetic reasons, or so that it can fulfill a kind of moral purpose. Um, uh, uh, that there's an attempt there to, to fix that landscape, um, to realize um, in the present what it what it might have been or what you imagined to have been in the past. Um, and so there is a similarity there, although there's a kind of radically different, ra- there are radically different epistemologies and, and maybe technologies of landscape at play in this period. Um, and... Um, and so I think I've, I've lost my, I lost my train. Help me out here. What? <laughs> no, this is really fascinating. I had a suspicion that this wasn't in the dissertation, although I'm not familiar with um, the shape of that. Uh, but I like the way it anchors these two points and sort of plays between the modern contemporary modern and the the pre-modern period, right? Because it's set in the late Qing and the Republican period. Um, and it introduces Western actors and, and Western texts and Western ways of seeing, um, which will indelibly color the way this this project evolves, right? In, in the end of the book with the socialist and the post-socialist uh, three gorges. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in, in a way, I think this was the most fun part of the project to write, possibly because it was new material. Um, and, and of course, you know, I hadn't really written about or so much about English language materials in the past. Um, but it was clear to me that, um, that there was something new going on. Um, and, and one of the reasons this material was so fascinating and so useful is because although there are many examples that, um, of texts that are written in full knowledge of the landscape tradition and in English or in other languages, um, you know, that, invoke that landscape tradition that visit the same sites and that are in a way I would argue part of that tradition, even though they're written in Western languages uh, by not by Chinese people. Um, but at the same time, I think that there was a, it was a first moment where you could really find evidence of um, an alternative, maybe nascent at first landscape tradition centered on this place that was not just about the exact same literary landmarks, mythological landmarks, so that your interest was drawn instead to the bed of the river, to the banks of the river, to navigational hazards. Um, And in reading these Western texts, you you see, of course, that the knowledge of the river, um, uh, Western knowledge or a kind of scientific reinscription of the river is is just dependent on... um, the knowledge of local people who had been inhabiting the region traveling along the river for millennia, basically. Um, although obviously there are historical differences in different periods. It's not a, uh, unbroken, um, homogenous tradition by any extent. Um, uh, and so just finding that interplay of, a of a local and in particular an embodied experience of the river and a, um, a kind of mediatized scientific cartographic understanding, um, which is, which is, you know, obviously 
what I think I describe in the book as maybe the immediate but not ultimate precondition for the dam project. Right? So this is this is a um, an engagement with a reconceptualization of the river um, that is the most obvious sort of historical starting point for the dam project. Um, so that in order to even think about the construction of a dam, you know, you'll have to think about it in hydrologic terms, in geological terms. Um, you'll have to you'll have to fit it in a kind of longitudinal, latitudinal grid. Um, uh, it has to be sort of seen that way first. Um, uh, but ultimately, what's fascinating is just what's happening um, at the same time that that project is ongoing, and that's much more nuanced and it has much more to do with kind of the physical labor that that was still required in that historical moment to navigate the river um, in particular the the need for trackers to pull boats up and down the river um, who appear very often in non-fiction accounts but also later in some fictional accounts as maybe not surprisingly um, as kind of elegiac figures as figures of disappearance. Um, yeah. Yeah. So just for our listeners, the, the first part of this, the first chapter of this part is about the Chinese landscape and it tracks, um, introduces a lot of modern maps, geological information. Um, but not to worry, we're still firmly in the realm of aesthetics as well. So you will be, I think, very, uh, pleased with, with the way that, that Corey takes up these maps and how he um, performs the close readings. But the, the next chapter is about Chinese labor, and it really is about this figure of the tracker, um, Corey, that you've mentioned. Um, and you, you, know, you, you posit him now as this elegiac figure, but in the text, there is actually a really interesting concern for the future that's going on here that I found quite fascinating the tracker as this type, this Chinese laboring type who, as you say, in the accounts of, of Westerners is sort of the limit of the human, right? Um, subhuman because animal-like, but then also potentially superhuman. So this body that has become, that is both so traditional and so pre-modern, but also so technologized as to be terrifying. So could you tell us a little bit more about that concern about the tracker? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for a lot of Western travelers, maybe particularly British and American, um, the tracker was a kind of coolie or as, you know, as uh, at least one of the writers that I talk about in this section of the book says, like the, the, the most debased or the sort of the, 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 the form of coolie labor that was most debased um, because the, mo- the hardest uh because it brought the laborer the closest to some kind of animal state where all that was required was brute force. Um, so the, the tracker just gets swept up in a, in a, in a fairly well-studied um, and maybe predictable um, uh, language of the coolie of Chinese labor, which of course is part of a larger discourse of, of yellow peril or anxiety about Chinese labor um, in the American West in particular, although it finds manifestations in other parts of the world as well. Um, and so, um, yeah, there, it become. well, I think what was one thing that was interesting is that it becomes a convention uh, and it becomes a convention that is not I mean, that, that functions in a way that's not that dissimilar from the conventions you find in pre-modern, in the pre-modern sources, in that everyone who goes there writes about the tracker. They, they all do it. It becomes part of the scenery. Um, and um, they often write about it in the same way, or they cite the same people. They talk about their singing. They talk about their nudity. Um, you know, there are some instances that are more detailed, others that are less um, but the tracker becomes a kind of new convention in a, an expanded landscape tradition. And in the pre-modern period, they don't appear very often at all um, in poetry about the Three Gorges region, despite the fact that we know they were pulling boats up and down the river, right, that their labor was, was essential 
to travel, particularly upstream, um, but they're not conventional. And so they mostly don't appear with some exceptions. Um, and so, so to find a new convention in formation at a moment when uh, that's so well-documented in a way um, was really, really fascinating. Um, was, that was that just a fascinating discovery to sort of see, to see that. And also to see, I think, you know, how, um, you know, instantly this particular place gets swept up in what could only be described as like global conversations about label, labor and technology. Um, and so there's a kind of almost instantaneous, um, uh, yeah, I, well, let's see, how should I put it? There's a, um, there's just a sense of maybe the centrality of a, of a landscape like this to larger conversations, um, that, that it becomes easy for outsiders to sort of project onto it. But also it's clear that, um, it is, um, very quickly, uh, incorporated into um, larger conversations about labor and then especially about trade with China. Um, and that happens early and, um, yeah. Yeah, it was quite interesting to read, for example, the work of Isabella Bird, who is this has a sympathetic gaze, right, which is a, a type of gaze that you'll problematize. And I do want to get to that. But one of the things that was striking to me to read and resonates with a prior interview that I did on this channel um, is the way in which these rich Europeans write about Chinese laborers to me is it's a sort of um, maybe a willful blindness to the conditions of labor that European subalterns are going through as well, right? Um, the Chinese body that it can can withstand anything, right? Um, and and here, like turning back to this this prior book, um, Aaron Aaron Huang's. Uh, urban horror in which she talks about the the factory is actually a locus of, of one of the first modern horrors. Um, so there is a bigger story to, for sure to be told there. Um, however, what um, really hinges this chapter to the ne- rest of the book is this ethical concern also. And by the rest of the book, I mean the remaining chapters that we have to um, talk about still. And this question of the ethics of the sympathetic gaze, right? And of representation. Uh, and if, if the first a few chapters were about struggling, dispossessed elites like Dufu, nevertheless elites, right? And now we're trying to describe the Three Gorges as the experience of these sometimes laboring and sometimes uh, dispossessed and running away people on the margins, right? Not not the Dufus of the world. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about these questions that you ask about the ethics of looking? Mm-hmm at the three gorges and the people who inhabited them? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think your, 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 what you just said is helpful. We, we were talking earlier about, uh, or I was saying earlier before we started recording, how difficult it is to step back into a project that's been done for a couple of years. One, to remember what you said, but also to sort of think about it, um, you know, as a whole and in its parts. Uh, one of the one of the transformations that I am tracking that I thought was important to track partly because of the dominant narrative of the unchanging quality of this landscape and its traditions was this shift from a landscape that signified primarily or even exclusively through an elite culture, um, elite writers, elite figures, um, through to the present day when particularly in works of art that are responding to the Three Gorges Dam, we see the landscape with traces of that tradition, but as a setting for the embodied experience of, of, of impoverished people, basically, of poor people, of laborers, of people who are being dispossessed. And so there is a shift from a kind of elite landscape tradition dominated by by um, well-known writers and figures and people who would have been incredibly privileged, although perhaps dispossessed or displaced, um, uh, to a landscape tradition that is, that, is, that is informed by that aesthetically, but really radically differently focused on um, 
other forms of dispossession and displacement. Uh, and so I, I wanted to think partly engage because I was engaging with these 19th century and early 20th century writers who were so sort of uh, grotesquely focused on the bodies of these laborers, their sufferers, their nudity, the constantly talking about them in ways that were, that were, that seemed to verge on, on, on um, the sadistic and sometimes the sexualized, um, but that would sometimes, would often, in the case of Isabella Bird, be framed in, in a sympathetic light. And she's, of course, one of the more sympathetic, and her sympathy is ma- manifests in the greater detail of her description, which has a kind of contradictory effect, um, because it is objectifying uh, in a really dramatic uh, way. Um, and so it just, I think, I, I think reading that, writing, reading that material and writing those chapters before moving on to the contemporary material was useful because it just reminded me of the dangers that we all confront, but don't always acknowledge when writing about modern and contemporary China in particular. A lot of people have written about pain and suffering in 20th century China and in contemporary China, um, I think a lot more of us need to do that if only because so much of the material that one encounters or that scholars are attracted to is, uh, is, a, is, is a cultural production of horror and suffering and pain. Um, and it's very easy, whether you're writing about the contemporary period or the modern period, to just sort of write about awful things and the suffering of people who are really far removed from your lived experience. Um, and I, I, it was helpful to write about someone um, like Isabella Bird and others uh, um, and to think about how I might avoid writing in a similar mode about the suffering of people who are alive now and living in these places now. And so partly, I, you know, I, I just wanted to make explicit these things that are not always made explicit to say, look, what um, what are the ethical stakes of writing about people who are very, very, very different from me, um, who are experiencing things that, uh, or experiencing a precarity or a vulnerability that I have never experienced and will probably, hopefully, never experience, um, in a context where writing about them benefits me because it's my job. I mean, not that I make money from this book or anything, but it's, it's what I do. It's what, it's how I make a living. Um, I mean, obviously I read about a lot of different things, but, um, there's a kind of cultural capital that comes from that. Uh, and, um, and I, and I, I wanted to think through the stakes of that a little more carefully by saying, well, I understand that, um, yeah, maybe just by acknowledging those issues in particular. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's a, it's, it's something that I think about as well, perhaps not as much in relation to my own work, which is focused a little bit differently, but it, it, it comes up so often in our field, um, right? These uh, stories of sympathy and morality that are somehow unchecked in, in, in their own gazes. Uh, so I really, I really appreciate what you did um, here with your work. So let's turn then to the end of the book and the two chapters that are in the contemporary period. Um, and the first is about Jia Zhangke's film, Still Life one of the best treatments of this film that I've read, um, but one that's very much in conversation with scholarship on Chinese cinema and its relationship to landscape and to painting. Um, But perhaps instead of thinking about Chinese landscape, which you do, you do, um, in fact, in renaming the the tracking shot as a scrolling shot, I think uh, that's that's a nice move. And I really appreciated that. But what I thought was most productive for me and most new was the way in which you engage the socialist visual tradition, um, in combination with these quote-unquote traditional landscape aesthetics to explore what Jia does in his film uh, that, you know, answers to these questions of power and and ways of seeing. So if you could tell us a little bit about that aspect of the fifth chapter. <laughs> I think that what, what, I, what I wanted to do was, one of the things I wanted to do was to show how this what had often been represented as a kind of 
um, a kind of unchanging tradition that was in the process of being destroyed was in fact an incredibly changeable and vibrant tradition that was also in the process of being revived in this historical moment, partly because of this this narrative of, of loss and of destruction, um, right? That might make it seem as though all was, everything was being lost, but which in fact showed you that, okay, well, um, this tradition is is incredibly alive, particularly in this moment. Um, and that fact should, should help us to see maybe that, um, to help us to see kind of other examples, earlier examples of changes within that tradition, because it's not been stable. And in this moment of instability, we can kind of see maybe how that tradition changes, expands, grows more vibrant. Um, and, uh, to a certain extent can be decoupled from the physical space of the three gorges, even, even as there continues to be this relay. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, as I said, when we started the interview, this was, this is one of the first things that, that, that made me want to write about, um, the three gorges. Uh, I, I wanted to write about still life and I wanted to write about Dufu. And I believe this was the first part of the book that I wrote. And so in a way it's the oldest part of the book. And, and, and in some ways it's the part of the book that's changed the most over the years, um, and, and, and also that feels most distant to me at this point. Um, I think, you know, the, there, there had been some writing about, um, okay. So I think in writing this material initially and in the book, I was responding to some problems that I saw in the field of Chinese studies, particularly modern Chinese studies. I was really dissatisfied probably because I had been trained to a certain extent in pre-modern literary studies by how scholars of modern China, contemporary China talked about tradition and its appearance in, uh, in a film like Still Life or in other cultural objects at a moment when there was a real powerful and still ongoing revival of, of pre-modern kind of Chinese culture in contemporary cultural production. And there was a tendency to sort of identify traditional elements, right? Okay, well, here's a kind of traditional element or the film takes the form of a, of a, you know, of a regulated couplet or something like that. There was just a sort of, um, yeah, a, what felt to me sometimes like a simplistic account of historical illusions in contemporary texts. Um, what I saw was something much more radical, like basically the refashioning of a, of a, of a pre-modern of, of, of a pre-modern landscape tradition through the inclusion of um, or maybe the juxtaposition of anachronistic forms, including socialist realist iconography, like landscape um, compositions, figural compositions. And and I think one thing that arguably one thing that Jiajang Ke is doing is that he is sort of re-embedding these displaced figures in the landscape um, in the pose or the guise of socialist realist figures. Um, again, keeping in mind that, you know, that, that landscape functions in a very different way in, in that visual culture than it does in an earlier moment. Um, in, in the examples that I have in mind in this book, the figures dominate and the landscape is in the background. Uh, there's a sort of separation of um, figure and ground, and the figures tend to dominate the ground. And so Jia is invoking that, but also integrating landscape and figure um, uh, in, a, in a slightly different way, partly kind of through the extra mediation of this earlier landscape tradition, the sort of scrolling aesthetic, um, um, and, and I think it's a, it's a sort of invocation of the promises maybe of a, of an earlier socialist moment, even as it's a sort of ironic commentary on the failures of that, you know, of that, um, yeah, of that earlier moment of its promises and of the visual culture that it produced. Um, I think it's really, I mean, I, I don't know, this maybe is a cop-out. I think it's really, what's going on is really complicated. <laughs> I think that there are just, there are so many um, partly because it is so deeply 
intertextual or intermedial. Um, uh, that there are there are lots of ways to read these moments um, that are ironic, that are that are elegiac, um, that resemble uh, earlier moments of, in particular, um, socialist visual culture, even as they um, uh, more fully integrate or combine figure and landscape in ways that neither a pre-modern tradition nor the social tradition ever really did. Uh, and so there's a kind of um, uh, creation of a of a of a of a bal- in, in certain moments of a really balanced figure figural and landscape form, um, which doesn't have that many precedents, I would say, in in in, in this context. Yeah, uh, I I was recently teaching the other very famous landscape film in modern Chinese history, uh, Yellow Earth, um, and. There's been lots that's been written about that film that's quite compelling, but I really, I was itching. I was like, oh, I, I, I wonder if Corey can write something that I can assign to my students because that film is very different. Um, but I think that the the critical viewpoint you bring to this film might be also somehow transferable with difference, of course, uh, to that earlier text, which is also about the lost promise of that socialist gaze. Um, but Let's move on then to the last set piece, last case study of your book, um, which is the art of uh, Ji Yunfei, right? This artist who is wrestling with both historical traumas and anticipated traumas, right? So what I see as the kind of animating dialectic, so to speak, or question of that chapter is the, the problem that trauma is supposed to come after in a kind of unexpected way in a new place, but what Z is doing is actually thinking about both what we would classically consider to be traumas, the aftermath of the culture, the psychic aftermath of the cultural revolution, but also the anticipation or the presentness of the trauma of the three gorges. And he's ultimately he's doing that from far away and for a commission by a Western institution. Um, so yeah, if you could wrap up the story of your book, maybe with that last case before before we end the interview by talking about that the ne- your next project, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I really I th- I think in retrospect, I I wanted to in in writing about Jun Fei, whose work I you know I I, I like um, and find very interesting. I, I I wanted to think about the Three Gorges as a as a global landscape, I mean, as, as a, as a landscape that is, that is really, really connected to the rest of the world at every level at multiple historical moments. And I think that thinking about an artist like June Fay, who is based in the U S and has been for a while and who is represented by a gallery in New York and was producing, um, uh, one of the images that I read about in the book for the museum of modern arts, who then commissioned a, um, a famous um, woodblock gallery in China to produce a not mass produce but very small and expensive uh, run of woodblock color woodblock printed versions of this painting of the Three Gorges migration scroll, um, and so I thought it was just an important part of of thinking about how um, the that we're not just talking about a Chinese landscape tradition, whatever that might mean, um, whether we can even talk about a landscape like that in those terms after a certain historical moment, um, you know, in the modern contemporary period, I'm not so sure. And so this was helpful in thinking through that. Um, But mostly, I mean, again, I think it was a way, I think it was also, G helped me to think a little bit about what it means to participate in a landscape tradition and in this particular landscape tradition. And I, I think I see this book as a, as a, not just an account of that landscape tradition, but as, um, um, as part of it as well. I mean, unavoidably I'm doing what many other writers before me have done, which is that I'm kind of looking at these landmarks and writing about them and I'm writing about them, you know, uh, I'm writing about how they're written about, but I'm also, as a result, unavoidably writing about them. And so, you know, I didn't, I, what I really wanted to avoid, and I think a lot of people 
expected this with the projects. I really want to avoid a kind of like anthropological or explorer frame where I'm like, when I traveled down the three gorges in 2000 and whatever, you know, and I had this experience and like, I was there, right? I did this. I went there. Um, I didn't want to do that because I felt like it, for a variety of reasons, I didn't want to be an explorer. I didn't want to take this sort of, you know, anthropological approach. Um, But I didn't think it, I don't think it did justice to how this landscape tradition actually worked in that one does not need to go there. You can go there. And when you go there, you can do certain things and you can look for diffuse traces or other ruins and you can have that experience. Um, But it is as much a, a fantastical or imagined landscape as it is a real one. And it is one that you can have virtually or you it's one that you can experience virtually. And that is something that's been happening for really over two millennia. Um, and, um, and I think Jiyun Fei, who did travel, of course, to the Three Gorges, and, and you can see his writings about that and diaries and photographs that he took there. Of course, Jia Zhangke did the same thing. They went there. And I think that's something that is specific to how people approach the landscape now is that, you know, because you can go there, people go there and there is that kind of documentary element. Um, But the work that he produces is not entirely about the experience of having been there personally, uh, but um, of capturing something that is not um, reliant on that personal embodied experience, even as it's focused on bodily suffering and the bodily suffering of others. And so I think G, like Ja, were, you know, they were working at a moment when much of the damage had already been done, cities had been destroyed, people had been displaced, people were suffering, um, but the project wasn't done, right? We didn't, it, you know, it, it wasn't complete. And so how do you write about this trauma that you know is going to be an historical, multi-generational trauma, trauma at the level of the individual, but um, but a cultural, social, and again, multi-generational trauma. That is a sort of a challenge and one that seems to sort of um, not fit very neatly with um, a, a particular psychoanalytic tradition or a kind of literary psychoanalytic tradition for understanding how trauma operates. Um, so to, to write preemptively about a trauma that is unfolding or that will happen. And, and, and you know, he does that um, by, um, again, by looking backwards and by um, sort of creating this landscape, palimpsestic landscape in which the traumas of the um, contemporary displacement um, overlap, uh, bleed into... Um, historical traumas, particularly the Cultural Revolution, but other um, there are other episodes that you find, um, including kind of moments of of historical, you know, Chinese historical humiliation, opium war, etc., um, and that becomes a, a method for looking backwards becomes a method for looking ahead in a kind of predictive way, and um, yeah, and I think I was probably drawn to that as well because of um, because because of the work that I do on on the environment and sort of thinking about how you mourn for the future or how you kind of process a kind of trauma that is unfolding but that is deferred or that might be uh, um, belong more to a generation to come than to your own um, I think that was in the back of my mind even though I'm not you know, exactly writing about climate change or rising sea levels in that context. But, um, but, but, but unavoidably it's hard to, you know, it's hard to think about the creation of a reservoir of these rising waters and not think about something like rising sea levels. And so that's a sort of a free associative thing, but I, I, I try to, to make those moves in this book uh, as much as possible in the most rigorous way that I possibly could. I know it sounds a little bit like out there, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as you were talking, I keep thinking about how perhaps this is one of the one of the ruptures that we're living through is this morning for the future, um, not just environmentally, although, of course, that's very uh, 
prominent, but also a sort of the end of the lost end of history, <laughs> perhaps, right? This this moment that we're living through in which we're anticipating ruination in, in various modes and in various uh, parts of the globe. Um, so for those of you who would like to think about that with Corey, I really recommend taking a look at this book. Um, but before we finish, I want to ask you, Corey, uh, what is your next project? I mean, this book, uh, it's still new by our calculus, but it came out a few years ago. So I'm hoping, I'm anticipating, uh, not mourning, but excited for the future of your work. Yeah, so I, I am um, working on a project on threat. Uh, China as threat, China and threat. Partly it's a project that responds to the revival of or the kind of repurposing of a yellow peril rhetoric in the context of um, environmental anxiety, um, this perception of China as an environmental threat. Um, and I'm, I'm approaching environment at the moment in a fairly broad way to encompass things like um, public health emergencies. Um, so I've written a little bit about swine flu in particular, and I'm planning at some point to try, if possible, to write about COVID, SARS-CoV-2, although it's it's hard to write about, again, it's hard to write about something that's happening, um, but I have been thinking about that. Um, and the, the piece that I published on swine flu came out during the pandemic and had sort of bizarrely, um, depressingly appropriate timing um, because a lot of the the sort of the things that I trace in that article happened again in the context of the current pandemic in particular, a sort of um, fear in, in, in how and how the Chinese threat is, is figured. And so part of that project entails, you know, looking at um, looking at that at that discourse and historicizing that and sort of thinking about um you know, how the yellow peril is, is being repurposed in environmental context. Um, that's a small part of it. Part of it is, is also looking at, I mean, trying to theorize threat as a useful concept in the environmental humanities, as opposed to a concept such as risk, which obviously is the subject of, of you know, whole corners of academia and of the insurance industry and, um, you know, has a, an, actuarial purpose uh, and um, and is useful but doesn't seem to go very far in capturing how anxiety, environmental anxiety feels. Um, and so threat to me as a sort of speculative perspective account of why, what might possibly happen rather than what is probable or the probability of something happening um, strikes me as useful. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to theorize that um, as I put this sort of yellow peril fear of China, of China as threat culture, as I'm putting it, into a dialogue or in juxtaposition with expressions of environmental anxiety and threat um, coming from a Chinese cultural context. So, so trying to think about um, threat um, across the Pacific, not just in the U.S. or in North America and other places, Australia, where China is fear, but also um, thinking about fear and environmental anxiety in China. To a certain extent, I think, you know, I think the second project does pick up a lot of the issues that I am working with in the that I worked with in the first book, um, you know, threat is a speculative form. It's an imaginative form. It's a fictional form, but it's a or mode, um, but it's one that's designed to make things happen, right? So there's a kind of uh, um, pose that what you're talking about is the future when you speculate about threats, um, but the generally speaking. Uh, the goal is to make things happen now, in the moment. And so again, there is a relay between an imaginative form or mode and uh, real world impacts. And I, and I wanted to look really closely at that through a couple of case studies, one that's focused, multi, multi-chapter multi case studies, one that's focused on um, public health and the environment, so swine flu, COVID, and another that's focused on, as, as a sort of, 
case study of um, uh, how China is, is physically embodied. Um, and then another case study on uh, the South China Sea uh, and China's island building project there to think about, um, yeah, the, the, the realization of the materiality of threat in the creation of these islands um, um, and how this vision of China as a threat is running up against, um, you know, um, um, a very long, rich and really fascinating um, kind of anxiety about Chinese sovereignty and the threats posed to it by Western imperial powers, particularly in the Pacific. Um, and so the project has become really a trans-Pacific project that is comparative and that is as much, I think, about North America and the U.S. as it is about China. Um, and that's been exciting and challenging and we'll see <laughs> comes of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very timely. And I'm looking forward to your realization of it as a book. Uh, um, so I will, if I'm still on this channel, I will certainly be inviting you back when that comes out. Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed the book and I encourage uh, our listeners to pick it up. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Julia.